So I want to start off with kind of what looking at the last election, and so the, the big result, at least in terms of the House side, was 247. This is the largest amount of members that Republicans have had since the 1920s. But there's another interesting dynamic to that. And it wasn't just simply that one election. If you actually take a look at the last three elections that we, in terms of Republicans, the number of seats, we've been at 230 or higher. The last time, last time we had three elections in a row, we were 230 or higher was in the 20s when Nick Longworth was, in fact, the Speaker of the House. The other interesting thing about these three specific elections, the worst was we were at about two, we were 234. That's a better number than we had achieved the whole time during the previous majority. So the worst performance in terms of those three elections was better than any time in terms of the new era, the new Hastert era. In terms of the Senate, the, over the last two elections, um, we picked up 13 seats. The last time we came close to that margin was, was the uh, Reagan election in 1980, um, when, when we sort of, again came out of nowhere and sort of, and sort of um, got the majority. Um, so I mean, you're looking at two remarkable levels of uh, winning seats um, that we haven't seen for a while. So exactly how did that happen? Well, one of the things that occurred in 2010 was that there was a coalition put together um, that in fact, the real question was, is, was that a sustainable coalition? Was that something that just simply occurred in terms of one year? Was that just an isolated event? So let's sort of like take a look at what happened in terms of that. Let's start off with looking at women. Actually, in 2010, we won women. Um, and we actually got pretty close to matching men again. We only lost women by four, as in kind of the presidential election where we lost them by 11. This is all um, exit poll data. Um, among independents, we won independents by 19. Um, in 2010, this time we won them by 12, again, getting pretty close. Um, and then in terms of Hispanics, we got 38% of the Hispanic vote in 2010 and came pretty close again with 36%. So the idea was, was 2010 an isolated event, or was it repeatable? Um, in fact, it turned out it was pretty close to being repeatable. It didn't do quite as well as we did in 2010, but it came, it came remarkably close. Um, kind of what helped set this up was, um, what's happened in terms of the president um, and setting this up is, he has lost his fundamental argument that got him elected in 2008. Um, in 2008, the question was posed in the exit polls, do you think government should be doing more to solve problems, um, or government is doing too many things that is better left for businesses and individuals? And you can see by a 51 to 43 margin, people wanted government to be doing more, and that was really basically the rationale for his, his candidacy. If you take a look at what happened in 2010, you saw that number flip, 38-56, a pretty dramatic shift. Um, and in 2014, it was pretty close to that again, 41-54. Uh, to give you a contrast, um, in the presidential year, 2012, with that electorate, he lost that argument as well, 44 to 52. Um, however, given the fact that what people are looking for, and we'll get to this in a bit in more detail, they were looking for an alternative as opposed to the referendum campaign that the Romney team was doing at that point. I think had there been an alternative defined at that point, um, he, could have, he could have been beaten, um, particularly given the fact that he had lost that basic argument. And one of the reasons that he's suffering is because people's attitude about the economy is just really grim. Um, and and this, this, is at, this is at the time of the election. 29% uh, thought the economy was excellent or good, and 70% thought it was uh, not so good or poor. Um, and why did that matter? Well, because overwhelmingly the number one issue um, was in fact the economy. Uh, 40%. Everything else has been secondary. Truth be told, this has been in place for a while. But I want you, we did some focus groups, I want you to sort of hear the sort of tone and tenor and velocity as people describe their concern about the economy. 
We don't feel we're, we we're can not, get better. We just so want to stay where we are and not lose like, more than we've already lost. It would be, it seems like everything's going up. Prices are going up, but mm -hmm. our paychecks are going up. Yes. And it's hard to it's hard to manage a household anymore. Even with both people working, yeah, it's hard. It's out of control yeah. with this cost of living. It's out of control. So the, the next picture shows some of you may have seen in terms of previous times we got together. Um, but basically the, the analogy here that I did in terms of what, what it was like in terms of 2010 is sort of focus on the economy when the president was focusing on health care and it was just the wrong topic. Um, and it's still true today, and that is this concept that the house is on fire. And think of it this way. The fire on the roof, that's jobs in the economy, right? You can see there's a broken window on the left. That could be health care. The wiring's off. That could be energy. There's a crack in the uh, foundation. That could be the national debt. All real important. All need to be addressed. But it really doesn't matter until the fire's put out. And that's where the electorate has been since 2008. And so every time everybody wanders away from the economy, it's not that people don't realize those are important issues, but the other thing that emerges is you're, off, you're also off on the wrong topic. And that's clearly what happened to the president in 2010. Um, and basically he ran into this situation in, in 2014 where people weren't seeing the progress. And so when you, this is from the exit polls. Um, if you take a look at 2012, among the values of the economy is not so good, which represented about 45% of the electorate, you can see the Democrats won that 55 to 42 they should have been. Um, and Romney actually lost them by the same margin, 55-42, and those should have been Republican voters. But as we got to this election, and now that group represents about 48%, you can see that that flipped pretty significantly, 41 to 58. And basically, the analogy I like to give in terms of what's happening with the president, it's not that people dislike him particularly, um, but it's sort of like a football coach. They sort of liked, they thought the ideas were interesting, but after six years, he just didn't have any wins on the board. And it wasn't there was anything personal about it, but they wanted somebody who could put wins on the board, and so it was time to sort of move on. And, and that's, what I, that's, that's what sort of happened with him. And ultimately, when you take a look at the attitude about direction of the country, which has been remarkably negative for an extended period of time, um, in this case, two to one, this also from the exit polls, 31% the right direction, 65% wrong track, um, that created an atrocious environment. And so not surprisingly, um, his job approval was pretty negative at 44 to 55, and this is from the exit polls. Um, that's improved somewhat. Um, but what you're, what you're still seeing at, the, at this point, CBS actually just came out with a poll to show it's slightly negative. Um, Gallup has got him as high as 50%. But the bottom line is for an extended period of time, he's been having difficulty just even getting a majority of people to think that he's doing a good job. The Democratic response to the election um, actually is not necessarily her. Um, the Democratic response, and you've probably seen this from the stuff that came out of Philadelphia, and this is actually a quote from a, from a Democratic political operative, um, was our number one imperative for 2016 is to articulate a clear economic vision to get this country going again. And there was a real sense and sort of understanding that, in fact, they had not done that. Actually, Schumer came out with probably the toughest remark on the president, where he basically said something that we had, we had been saying, um, but hearing a Democratic senator of his scale say it, um, that actually the president had been on the wrong topic in 2010. Okay, So when you have a senator basically saying, Here's, here's my president, he made a huge strategic error. Um, that's probably a sign that there's a lot of internal conversations going on. So the concept of a wave here, I would suggest to you that, that this election wasn't a wave in the sense of a standalone. This was a continuation of the 2010 wave. The thing that's positive about that is that means this is something that is sustainable that we can build on and keep, keep going forward as opposed to just a simply isolated event. So what was the electorate basically saying in terms of this particular election? And I think this woman sort of encapsulates it pretty clearly. Obviously, the Democrats aren't getting it done, so let's try the Republicans again. 
Yeah, that's pretty much what I got. Um, and by the way, when they're talking about getting it done, it isn't just like kind of words on a page here. When they're talking about getting it done, they mean getting it done. They want to see a real accomplishment. <laughs> they want to see something really happening. How do we spend our mandate wisely so that by 2016, voters will want to entrust us to govern again? And so with that, there are three strategic challenges that emerge in terms of that. The first one that exists is who has the initiative? Okay. And so what the president is trying to do in terms of all these uh, executive actions is create this choice where he thinks he's going, he's going to win because we're going to default to one of them almost all the time. And that is basically the choice is are we going to find a direction for the country or are we going to react to the, to the president in terms of, of his executive orders? And the challenge here is every time he does an executive order, then it's he's, he's defining the playing field. Now, in some cases, we don't have any choice. When you look at the immigration, I mean, that's obviously a situation that you've got to engage. But there are going to be other situations um, where, in fact, you're going to have to somehow, we're going to have to somehow address them. One of the biggest challenges that's going to go on in both conferences is when does an executive action rise to the level that he's allowed to define the agenda rather than what we want to say and where we want to go? And that's going to be a constant tension. Um, and it's not going to be resolved particularly easily or quickly. Um, and each one, as it comes up, um, is, is going to be a probably a difficult choice. But understand this is a critical dynamic. If he is defining the agenda all the time to executive actions, then he's going to be defining a playing field that's relatively favorable to him. So at points in time, we're going to have to look at something that he does and say, you know, that's, that's kind of a big deal. But what we actually have to say, what we actually have to talk about is actually more important and have the confidence to go do that. So challenge number two is we have really atrocious brand. Okay, and, and by the way, let me, let me give you a different vision of brand. Brand is not the sort of trite thing, gee, do people like us, you know, that they think they care about us. What brand represents is what value does this party represent to people? I mean, think about when you think of something like Volvo, right? The thing that emerges when I say Volvo, most people say thought safety. Okay, that's real value. And so the question is, when people hear Republican, what do they hear? Right? What's, what, is, what is that? And you can see, at least at this point, um, we have a fave on fave of 32 to 55. Fortunately, the Democrats are in, basically in the same ballpark at 36-54. Um, neither, neither party is doing a particularly good job. But think of this. In terms of those folks I was talking to, one out of three people who voted for them had an unfavorable view of the Republican Party. Right, that's a pretty amazing number. That shows you the level at which they were going to have to outperform the party brand at that point. You might be able to sustain that for an election or two, but ultimately that's going to catch up. And something's got to be done in terms of resolving that. One of the advantages we have, though, is this is, we asked this question on a scale of one to nine, where you put yourself. Um, the electorate put themselves, as you can see, sort of center-right at 5.79. Right? It's a center-right country. And that's a huge strategic advantage for us. Um, where's the actual political center, which, by the way, the political center is not the ideological center, as you'll see here. The political center, independents, put themselves around 5.5, 5.6. Where do they put the Democrats? Way to the left, right? Where do they put the president? Even farther to the left in terms of Democrats. Where they place us? Farther to the right. So if you do sort of like classic game theory transportation costs, you can see that, in fact, if we're talking about issues, we're actually closer to where the electorate than they are. And that's a huge strategic advantage. And that should be some, that this is a potential opportunity in terms of brand as well. Hillary Clinton has got some good news, bad news here. Good news is she's perceived as farther to the right than the president. 
Unfortunately, she's also viewed farther to the left than the Democratic Congress. Not exactly a great starting point for her. Um, one thing that's sort of driving this, by the way, what, one element in terms of center-right country, if there's one thought that makes this country a center-right country, and this cuts across party ideologies, is this belief. The belief that economic growth will basically solve all problems. If there's something that really connects all the center-right elements, that's it. So this is a chart from uh, taking a look at the ideology in terms of exit polls going from, um, going from 1984 through today. The green line is uh, moderates, blue line conservative, red is liberals. And I want to show you sort of a particular trend. In this last election, we actually only lost, our moderates only uh, were larger than conservatives by three points at 40 to 37. That's a lot larger, that's a lot closer than it was actually when we took the House back in 94, where 45% were moderate and 37% were conservative. But there's an interesting trend. If you go back to 2000, you can see that the spread was about 20 points between moderates and conservatives. You can see by the time you got to the middle of the decade that it closed, and you can see now that there's actually a structural shift. And part of that is, again, reflect going back to that argument that the president used to actually win the election in 2008 and now having lost it, um, that has caused some shifting to occur. But what this also goes back to is, this is interesting in the sense of, if we engage on issues, um, we can really define things. And what I want to do is I want to show you, because I've got updated numbers that aren't necessarily, you'll see the transition here. When I showed the numbers to them, this is where it stood. Which party do you have more confidence to handle uh, these variety of issues? The, the two key ones, if you take a look at the economy, we were up by seven. Uh, jobs, we were up by four. Note that in healthcare, we were down by six. Okay, what that simply means is no, it's not people like the healthcare plan. Actually, they dislike it by a pretty wide margin. Uh, they just don't think we have an alternative. So it's really nice they don't like that plan. Um, but they have no, but they still don't think we have the ability to put one together, and so they have more confidence in Democrats to put that together. This has changed. We just came out of the field. What you're going to see is things tightened up quite a bit. Um, instead of having that larger seven-point lead on the economy, it's now one. On jobs, we actually trail by three. Healthcare is about the same margin as eight. Um, and simply, what, what's happening at this point is part of part of the discussion is if we're not out there. Post, as we were going through the campaign, we had a lot of candidates who were defining, here's where I want to go, here's what I want to see happen in terms of the economy, a variety of things, as we got back here, and as the president, to some degree, was able to define what the debate was about, and we're debating on his terms, um, we find ourselves having difficulty with some of these issues. Because having said that, one of the challenges and one of the things that was, that was posed to me was this idea, so if the economy is getting better, what do we do? Well, actually, what you see here is we pose this question, do you think the economy is getting better, but the rate of progress is unacceptable, uh, it's getting better, rate of progress is acceptable, not better at all. Not better at all is actually our base. Um, that 30% actually on election day in terms of the, the, the getting better um, and it's acceptable was actually around 22, so that's slightly improved, but that's really Democrats coming home. What you still see is that large group of people who are saying, yes, it's getting better, um, but the rate of progress is unacceptable. To a large degree, what you're looking at is people see those numbers, but they're not feeling it personally. So one of the, and by the way, one of the reasons the economy is getting better, and this is one of the challenges as we begin to pivot um, and think about 2016, because again, the one thing I can promise you, February 2017, um, and I'm 100% sure of this, we'll have a different president. <laughs> right? But what are we going to do with that in the meantime? And so one of the things that we tend to forget is the impact that we've actually had since December 2010. 
Um, so since December 2010, just to rattle off some stuff so you just have some context in terms of did we have an impact, um, 9.6 million jobs have been created, the deficit's been cut in half, we're now the number one producer of energy, and we got 98% of the tax cuts that were passed in 2001 through. Okay. That has had a significant economic impact. Is it enough to turn the country around? No. Right. Is it enough to sort of begun to move things in the right direction? Think about how bad it would have been without. And so part of the opportunity here is, okay, look at what we've managed to do that have sort of gotten things going in the right direction. Think about what could happen if we could really get the policies through that we want. So here's what we can do, but here's where we could really be. So that means, okay, this is the third challenge. How do we, how do we manage our repo the Republican proposals? And there are basically three buckets that exist here, okay, in terms of in terms of where each proposal can go. One is it passes Congress, it's signed by the president. That's what people are going to sort of see as governing, getting it done. Okay. Option number two is it passes Congress with 60 in the Senate, vetoed by the president. That's what Keystone sort of looks like. What that really does is that sort of defines the choice for the 2016 majority coalition. That in fact, here's the choice. If you had a Republican president, look at in fact what we could get done. And then the third bucket is passed to the House. It's filibustered by the Senate. Uh, movement on key initiatives for our base. Ultimately, we're going to need to have stuff in all three of these. And you, I mean, you can't afford one. The toughest one is going to be the top, the top one, getting him to sign off on things. Um, because from his perspective, every time he can make it really difficult for us, um, that potentially makes 2016 a lot more complicated. Um, in terms of the middle bucket, um, the challenge there is going to be you're going to have to get six Democratic senators to agree that they basically want to poke a finger in the president's eye, right, the leader of their party. Um, in Keystone, it became so important to those members that, that actually that outweighed that. So think about that in terms of as, as we're trying to think through legislation, we've got to get Democrats on board that are willing to go against their party leader. Um, but, and we're going to need stuff in all three of them. And what's the theme that we need to do in terms of like, how do you drive that? Ultimately, we've got to move to the idea of proposing a future and making it possible. Because one of the dynamics here is when you take a look, and this is an old picture, and, and it's hard to figure out what the field's going to look like. We're going to have a big field. Um, and by the way, it's going to be a good field. Right? I, mean, I, mean, I mean, in the sense of uh, we've got a lot of really good candidates. I mean, the quality level in terms of who's out there and who's engaged, um, I'm sure everybody in this room could look at that and say there are three or four people that I'd be really comfortable with. You may have a preference at this point, but there's a larger group there. Um, but I'm also going to suggest to you, if we're going to sort of sustain this change, the idea that, and they're going to have a discussion, we can't just simply wait for this to get decided sometime next spring um, and then decide now we're going to engage in a policy discussion. Let me go back and give you one of the best examples of where you saw an initial initiative come out of um, the Congress that actually drove an important presidential election. Um, and that was Jack Kemp in 1978, reporting out, actually it was called the Jobs Creation Act um, in 1978, which was basically ended up being Kemp Ross, which ended up being the sort of central piece and concept to what Reagan ran on in 1980. That came as an initiative out of the House. Right? And so as, and, and as all of you playing these critical roles, what are the products you're thinking through? That's an example of where a huge election was defined by an initiative um, out, of, out of the House. And as we think about um, what that electorate's going to look like, and it's going to be a different electorate than what we saw in 2014. They're going to be more minorities. They're going to be younger voters. Um, it's going to be a larger turnout overall. 
Um, so what I want you to listen to is, is this voice of a person um, representing one of those groups um, that we're going to need to do better with and listen to how they describe things and listen to the fact that this is a voter we should have. It's all about the economy back when the, the market crashed with the, with the mortgages and it's slowly getting there, but it's very slow. And the jobs are coming, but they're very slow. Not as fast as, as they used to. Obama yeah. promised that they were going to come. Why do you think it's going fast enough? Uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans in fight. Not, not working for the best interests of the country. So they pull into each side. And, and, and you know, when you, when you, <laughs> When you, when you do that, we get affected. And so you can hear he's looking for something, and he's a real opportunity. And what he's basically stating is something that actually a person who Rich and I work for, um, Newt Gingrich, um, used as a line, Walmart doesn't get ahead by attacking Sears, but by offering better value. And what we have to do with him and looking forward to the 2016 election is how do we offer better value. This isn't necessarily about meeting expectations, per se. This is about what's our product. What is it that we're going to say about us that people go, I want that. And that's, and that's where the real opportunity is. And that's where you all play just a central role here, as going back to that camp analogy. What are you going to do between now and this summer to think through the products, right? I'm talking legislative policies here, that really offer value to people and get them moved forward and get them out and being discussed. Um, waiting, till next step, waiting till next spring is too long. We need to be thinking through this now. Um, and you all represent a significant opportunity in terms of being able to do that. And so the challenge is kind of, don't look at us up here. Um, what is it that you're going to do when you get back and say, okay, what's the next best thing? And I've seen some examples of that, certainly what Congressman Rowe and, and um, Burgess are trying to do in terms of health care with, with Fred Upton and team. Um, those are examples in terms of how do you begin to move forward, how do you begin to think through value, and what it is we offer as a party. So with that... Thank you.